So this retreat, and actually the rest of your life, is about finding peace of mind even in difficult times. Not just for you, but for all beings. We're, you know, we're learning to calm our minds and emotions and work with them for all beings. Even if no one else does it, you can be that one person. You can be that person finding calm in the storm. So really, this these times um, are, it's a bit like if you had 15 frogs and you got an open bowl and you're trying to get all those frogs in a bowl. It's, it's tough. And Paul, you can show the slide of the frogs. So these frogs are actually in a bucket and there's, I think, 15 of them. <laughs> um, but imagine an open bowl and the, you get one frog in and then another comes out. And, you know, right now they're all in there, but that doesn't last long. So can take the slide down. It, it's not, we won't be able to control things. We won't be able to get all the frogs in the bowl and to find peace with that and just the craziness of these times is like all these frogs in a bowl. So I'd like to talk about three main areas today. One is working with the mind and thought forms. Really important, we know how to work with thought forms. The other is calming the emotional body and healing the emotional body. And the third is finding and cultivating awake view or absolute view. And I pretty much always talk about the same things about working with your mind and your emotions and calming them, our human stuff and then ultimately cultivating something that's even bigger than who we are, that awake or absolute view. That's kind of the theme of everything I talk about. And the Buddha talked about the mind and emotions really as what's called samaditi, which in Pali or the language of the Buddha means right view. And he said that our whole life really focused around right view. Our whole um, world and our whole, the way we did everything in our life came around having this um, correct relationship to mind and emotions. In the Dhammapada, he said, all that we are is the result of what we have thought, is founded in our thoughts, and is made up of thoughts. So that's a lot. You know, everything we are is founded in thoughts and made up of thoughts. And he used the word um, for thoughts and views as ditti. Ditti is the Pali word. And he actually said that, you know, with our thoughts and views, it's like being in a thicket. So you can show that slide, Paul. 
So here we are, this um, thorny thicket of views and opinions. And as you know, everyone's caught in this thicket right now of what they think and believe. And even if you're right, it's painful, right? To be in all these thoughts and beliefs, all the arguing. So really being aware of the pain of this thicket of views and opinions. You can take the slide down. So what to do about all this? What do we do? Well, of course, because we're students of mindfulness, we bring awareness to our thinking process itself and how we get caught in that thicket. Zen master Banke said that we get born by taking our mind seriously. So, you know, we're always coming into birth with each thought. We get born by our thoughts. And it makes sense when you really look at the word in English to conceive. I conceived, uh, you know, thought about this or that. And really conceive means to conceive, to give birth. So we're giving birth to ourselves, our emotions, our whole being by our thoughts constantly. We're giving birth. That's, again, what the Buddha said, all that we are is a result of what we have thought. So, again, not to get all triggered about that, but just to go bring awareness, bring awareness. How are you giving birth to yourself? You know, what are the constructs that we are seeing? And, you know, the mind really is ultimately our thoughts are empty, but we think they're real. We think they're real. It's really when you look at your mind itself, it's just like mirrors bouncing off of mirrors, bouncing off of mirrors. If you really get specific and down to it, there's nothing there. There's an endless loop. People, some people describe it as a recording device. Your, your brain just records and plays back and records like an echo chamber. There's not really a lot of new stuff there. Your heart, on the other hand, is kind of a different matter. But there's just this illusion. Our thoughts about this pen are not the direct experience of the pen. The thought of your mother is not your mother. And yet we think it is when we think about our mother. Oh, yeah, that's my mom. Or that's my friend, but it's a thought. And the thought world is symbols and concepts. Or as they say these days, the thought world is a meme. And we've forgotten that our thoughts are memes. And that we're treating them as something real. So just to be aware of this, ah, oh, my mind's an illusion. And you know, when they talk about the world being illusion, Buddhists often will talk about that. That doesn't mean the material world out there, this pen is an illusion. Material world's not an illusion. The concepts we have, 
the overlays, the whole story we tell about this, even the word itself is a whole created illusion. You know, when you really break down thoughts, they're just sounds. Every time I start talking with my teacher, he'll he'll just joke with me and I'll go, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> he'll just start making these sounds. You know, it's like, because that's what all my thoughts are. There's wow, 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 wow. Sound after sound after sound and language that we've created meaning on that language. But there isn't any real anything there. So he's always bringing it back to that. And then what happens with thoughts is we create a collective illusion as a culture with the language means this and that means that. So let's take one example. A really good example is um, separation. We, we learn to see the world apart from us. But originally, as you know, any of you who have had kids, you know, originally in the first part of our life, up until about two, nothing is separate. We don't see anything as separate. But then with the development of language, we learn to start conceiving. Mom is different than me. This is my toy. We learn to see the world as out the, there. Initially, the world is not an object. We learn to see the world as a separate object, okay? And then our culture teaches us, oh, yeah, the world's a separate object. We all create this collective illusion. Then we act in that way. And then a whole world of pain follows. If the world's a separate object, then we need to control it, get those frogs in a bowl. And we need to seek things. We need to seek truth, enlightenment, money, whatever, security. And then we need to guard it once we get it. So we're seeking and guarding and we're, and there's just this pain. Imagine if you never created this idea, the world was separate. <clears throat> and there's some cultures they don't. It would be a lot less suffering. You wouldn't be trying to control the world. The world wouldn't be an object. And you know what? We start to think, we start to feel. So if we think the world's separate, we feel it's separate. If we think the world's unsafe, we start to feel it's unsafe. So there's this whole cascade of thinking and feeling. One thought leads to another. So Paul, go ahead and put up the the dogs. <laughs> this is a little um, meme or gif or whatever they want to call it about how our minds work. Okay, so <laughs> this is what happens. Thoughts chasing emotions, chasing thoughts. It just goes around and around. Okay, just remember this. That's what your mind does constantly. It's going nowhere, by the way. <laughs> I hope you can see that. And it's funny, if you step back and look at this, our mind does this, our thoughts and emotions go round and around, doing nothing. <laughs> All right, thank you.
So how to work with this mind that, that does this round and around dogs, <laughs> little dog, big dog, white dog, black dog, how to not be seduced by this round and round of the mind. It's not easy, not easy. So one thing is to remember, you've all been in a car driving and you know you have the radio on, maybe a long drive across the Midwest. <clears throat> you know where you're going. The radio is kind of an extra thing. So, you know, your heart, your GPS of your heart or just your presence, it's driving the car. The truth is your presence is driving the car. It knows where it's going. Your mind is like the radio in the car. Does it really matter what the mind's doing or saying? It doesn't really change where the car is going. So your true nature is driving. The mind's the radio. So you could turn the radio down. You know, sometimes we can turn it off, but somehow the radio pops back on again. It's, it's miraculous like that. Um, but turn the radio down when you can. Just, just realize what's really driving the car is not your mind. Another really um, good practice to use on just calming your mind down and getting back to what's real. And it's number two in your spiritual credo. You don't need to put it up, Paul, but it's number two, which is um, just if this was the last 10 minutes of your life, you know, what would you be thinking? Probably not much. You wouldn't be worried about whatever. You'd just be present if this was the last 10 minutes of your life. And I like this analogy because 10 minutes isn't enough to change anything. You're, you're like stuck where you're at. It's kind of like the pandemic. You're stuck. So you notice last 10 minutes, you'd cut to the chase. You'd get to what's really important. You'd, you'd love the breeze. You'd send loving kindness to your kids. You know, we actually had that happen here in Hawaii. We had a little text that said we had 15 minutes before a missile was going to hit here. And it was really good to see, you know, what's real in those moments. And it brings you back to your true nature. So throughout the day, I asked myself, if this was the last 10 minutes, you know, when my mind's going into judgment or whatever it does, I, my mind likes to get on the judgment channel. So um, I just go like, if this was my last 10 minutes, and it's absolutely not, I wouldn't be judging. No. You can also look at if you want to kind of work with your thoughts. Like, who are these thoughts being played out for? You know, we assume that there's a part of our mind talking and another part of our mind listening. Well, there aren't two minds. You don't, you don't have two minds. 
So if there's not really anyone listening, there's not two, but what are, what are these things, these thoughts played out for? It just kind of ends this kind of mishigas of the mind. Again, the dog's going around and around and you don't have to show it, but you know, the dog's going around. There's no one this is being played out for. It just ends. It ends more often. Your mind doesn't have an audience or think it has an audience. Then it's over. Who does your mind think it's talking to? (laughs) It's really fun to sit back and go, who is my mind talking to? And the teacher I work with normally, he's just really funny and laughing. And the other day, he just gave me a really hard teaching. I was talking about judgment and he and just you know working with judgment. And he said, he just said to me really point blank, he said, no one cares. <laughs> and it was like, it just like took me aback. But I thought about it. I was like, he's right. All those judgments or whatever your thought thing is, it's like, no one cares. And then I got to realize in that moment, I don't even care. I don't even care. And when you can really drop down to that level of whatever your mind is obsessing about it, it doesn't matter. And the game's over and can just get so much more quiet. And really, when you come down to it, awareness itself, below those dogs running, awareness itself, the space those dogs are running in, awareness itself has no thoughts. Awareness has no thoughts. So if you really want to go to just come back to pure awareness. Remember, I said earlier in the meditation, you're being aware, so it's not even you doing it. That's why in Buddhism, we emphasize mindfulness and awareness so much. It's the core of all the Buddhist teachings, and a lot of other religions have it as the core, because awareness, in its essence, has no thoughts. It just is. So you're back to the bedrock. You're at the source before the story. The source. That's you. You're the source. So bringing awareness to the illusionary world of thought. And then emotions. Of course, we also want to bring awareness to emotions, but with emotions, it's a little um, more complicated. So you want to bring awareness and compassion. Why compassion? Um, Emotions are, are more deeply held in our conditioning, 
emotions get triggered by thoughts and they're more complicated. They, they have, they, they log into our pain body more, even more than thoughts. So it's important to take more care with emotions and care means compassion. So we bring awareness and compassion to emotions. And I want to just back up a minute before we go into working with emotions and look at some of the science of trauma, because we're really in a time where people are having traumatic reactions, small and big. And during difficult times, it's really important to know the science of trauma because it it can help you work with your emotional body. So one of the key things to remember during these times, whether it's COVID or climate change, whatever's gonna be coming down the pike or is here now, is it's called an ambiguous loss. An ambiguous losses cue danger into our system because they don't have an end. They don't have a place where we can rest. So think about people who have a missing kid. It's just that sense of they're constantly in a state of distress because there's no end point. They don't have any resolution. Well, unfortunately, climate change and probably you know pandemic-like events They don't have an end date. They don't have a place where you can shut off and realize it's all clear. So that cues danger and unsafety in our system. So we're kind of in a constant state of not being able to relax. And then a second thing happens with these ambiguous losses where you're generalizing the safety to the lack of safety to everything. So you, because of COVID, then we start to see everything as sort of mildly or in a bigger way, even unsafe. And we start to look at everything as dangerous. It's the way the mind generalizes trauma. It's just a phenomenon that happens. So our primitive fight or flight system turns on and we really, really have to bring awareness and compassion to to that, that we get in this primitive amygdala trauma brain. So go ahead and put up the first trauma chart, Paul, and we'll just look at, we're just, just gonna name and look at what's happening. So these are uh, four uh, trauma responses. There used to be three, but now they know there's this thing called fawning. And I just put this up so you can see, you know, the first part is mobilizing. The top half is kind of more mobile responses and the bottom half is more kind of collapse responses. But it's just important to know, you know, where you're at, when you're going to bounce all around this chart, but you're going to be in controlling one day, anxiety another day, people pleasing another day, dissociation, difficulty making decisions another day. And just to name it, just to be able to name emotions, that's part of awareness and compassion. 
So you can go ahead and take that down. And you know, why naming? You know, why bring the labeling and just knowing? Because they've shown in research studies that when you label something, it moves it from the amygdala, the trauma brain, to the prefrontal cortex. In MRIs, they can actually see it move to a different part of the brain. Prefrontal cortex being where you can have higher order processing. You're not just stuck in a primitive response. So when you can name these things and go, oh yeah, this is a trauma reaction, one of those four. We're in a time of, you know, where there's ambiguous loss. Then it helps open up space. You're not blending, you're moving it to a different area of your brain. I also want us to look at um, how this period of difficulty and trauma can actually take us to the next level. Like I mentioned in the introduction that we can use this as a way to even be better. So go ahead and put up the next trauma chart. So let's look at the left side. So trauma starts with, I can't, I hurt. We all know that. I can't, I hurt. Then we move into this mobilization, I must. And then the resolution of trauma is I can and I am. So it's really beautiful when you look at this system. What can happen with trauma is we start out with this I can't, I hurt. And then we're moving through as we bring awareness and compassion to actually like this. It shows you on the right, this flow, this self-co-regulation with yourself and others of where you're actually really self-actualized. I can, I am. So that's the opportunity trauma gives us to move from the pain, the hurt to I am which is a really awake state to know that you are, to take the trauma to the next level, can start off as you see on the right with collapse to mobilization, to flow, freeze, fix, flow. So the beautiful opportunity of trauma is to learn about flow and really your true nature. So you can go ahead and take that down. You know, in a simple way, some uh, trauma folks talk about tending and befriending your mind. You know, use these times to tend and befriend your mind. And that's, you know, a slightly different angle than the Buddhist kind of no self and emptiness, which we'll talk about later. It's more a loving kindness working with your parts and the emotions that get triggered in the emotional parts. I think of it almost like making a big lap, the lap of the Buddha that all your parts can sit in, you know, if you had a 
part during COVID that maybe drank or ate more than you wanted to, you know, just bringing that part in, a part that doesn't care, that's angry, that's tired, you know, bringing all your outliers and all your parts in and letting them sit in this big lap of you. An Indian woman teacher in our uh, Vipassana tradition, I wrote about Deepama, she would say to people, and she had this room in, um, in Calcutta where people would come, and, and she would say, oh, please come in, and if there's no room, come sit on my lap. You're all welcome. You're all my Dharma children. I'll always be here for you. So this, just this sense of this big welcoming presence, uh, sit on my lap, any of your parts. And you can be this mountain of presence that can hold any, any distressed part of you, any outliers, any rogue parts of you. You know, all emotions are held in infinity. There's a presence, and even if you can't feel that, there's a presence of you that all emotions come and go in. Let yourself feel that and be that. This you that everything's happening in, all emotions. Be the space it's all happening in. And sometimes if I have a really difficult emotion or thought process, I'll just say, like, how would infinity see this or be with this? And that's another little practice I use besides that, what do I think in my last 10 minutes of my life? Like, how would infinity see this? Anything you're really stuck with? It certainly wouldn't be really caught round and around like those dogs. Infinity just would be. And there's, you know, is there gain in infinity? Is there loss in infinity? Ramana Maharshi said, let what comes come. Let what goes go. See what remains. What remains when all your emotions come and go? And it's important to work with this mountain of quiet, this inherent stillness, this infinity view, because the world's not going to cooperate, as you've probably noticed in the last year, the world's not going to line up to create safety for you. The world is not going to be your safe place, or at least not for very long. It's like the frogs and the bull. You might get your world to be a safe place for a few minutes, and then boom, the frogs are jumping out, right? And then you get it okay for a little while, and then again. So you won't get the world to cooperate, but you can be the safe place. You can be it here now. You are the safe place. You are the refuge. 
And then when you're doing that, it can be there for all beings. Not that you need to do that, but that's the beauty of it. When you're the safe place and the refuge, it's like for all beings. One of my students, he was talking about being the beach. He doesn't even live in Hawaii, but he really liked this idea of being the beach. So even the waves come and go and a huge tidal wave might destroy the beach, like the pandemic. The beach is still here somewhere. And then the water recedes way back. Just let yourself be the beach, no matter what kind of waves and calamity, drought, fires, floods. Be the refuge, be the beach. The dream world, samsara, the Buddhists call it samsara, which means really a world of suffering. This human world that we're in, it's not ever going to be safe. The dream world will never be safe. You know why? Because everything's impermanent. You know, we forget. Everything you see right now, you look around you, your own body, your friends, it's all going to die. Everything. And yet we get surprised by that and upset by that. I mean, there's one constant. You look around, everything's going to go, including the earth itself, one day. So everything's going to die. So where's the safe place in that? And to use your practice to find, how do you find safety in that? How do you find the deathless in everything dying? And I'll talk a bit more about that in absolute view. But I wanted to say a few more things about emotions before we go to absolute view. During the pandemic and anytime you've got a lot of trauma in the world, in your culture, in your society, you get what's called protector parts. People get in protector parts. And there are parts that when you think of a protector, think about like a bouncer in a bar, you know, really big, tough guy or bodyguard. Protectors are, they're intense, they're angry, they're sometimes afraid. They're very intense energy. And so almost everyone's got bumped into a lot of protector parts. And again, the protector might look different ways. It might look like collapsed fear. It might look like anger. It might look like obsessing. But make sure that you watch what protector parts you're in, because otherwise it's just protectors meeting protectors meeting protectors in the world right now. And angry people then are creating more angry people and afraid and dysregulations, creating more dysregulation. So a lot of what's happening now is people's protector parts are meeting other protector parts. And that's just a little bit like a thunderstorm. It's not a good thing. So the more you can go, all right, I'm in a protector part or they're in a protector part. And again, bring awareness and compassion, that perfect combination to emotions. Oh, they're in protector mode. 
Oh, and so am I. And then just back down. See who's driving the bus. Do you have an angry part driving the bus? And then back down just to that mountain of quiet and self. Back down to just the Buddha nature, your presence driving the bus, not somebody who's mad or fighting. Centered, wise self is really the antidote to protector parts whenever you can get back to centered self. And again, you know, if you need to, how would infinity see this? That person's mad. How would infinity see this? Well, let them be mad. You know, infinity would see through this timeless eyes and probably laugh a lot more. So that can help you flip out of protectors into this bigger presence of you. Another way to flip is to realize that even when you're angry or upset, it's because there's something you value. So you can always get curious, even when you're angry, there's something you love. So drop down below the protector into what it is you love and value. So then you're focusing not so much on what you're against, but what you're for. And you can emphasize that in any situation, you know, what you're for, what you love, what you value versus what you're against. And the last piece to mention about emotions is, you know, learning to surf emotions. So Paul, go ahead and put up the slide. And this is an actual wave in the um, Oahu. <laughs> Waves get that big here. Um, so emotion is energy in motion. That's all emotion is, energy. So you can learn to be a surfer, a grief surfer, an anger surfer, your emotions, other people's emotions, learn to surf. And you know, when you surf, you stay on top of things, right? You're enjoying that energy in motion. You're connected with it. And the beauty of surfing is there's a space between waves. So beyond that wave, there's, a, there's what's called a trough. Might be it look like a giant wave, but there's a pause in between the waves. You don't just surf the wave, you surf the empty spaces as well. So in your life with emotions, we're surfing these big waves. We're surfing the empty space. So you can take down the slide. And learning about these empty spaces is important. Before I understood the ocean, um, it, uh, I got caught way out in some wind. But, you know, eventually you learn to really be in rhythm with the water. And even when you're in the water, you know when the wind is going to change even before it changed. You, you, get, you get a feel for the ocean that's almost, that can know things before it can happen. But this was before I learned that. 
So the wind all of a sudden like kicked in and I was pretty far out and I didn't anticipate that would happen because I wasn't connected yet then. And so the wind was very strong and every stroke I took, it pushed me at least a quarter, three quarters, uh, if not more back. So in that time of really almost drowning, I had to learn to work with the these rhythms of the ocean, the waves and the quiet. And it was like emotions and you learn to get in sync. And eventually when I got in sync with both the strong wave and then the quiet, I just was able to rest in this place of okayness. I could have swum forever then when you're just in that place, it's all okay. It's all okay. And you can find that sink and it's really an energetic sink. And I know some of you who are attuned can know what I'm talking about. So there's a really nice poem that I'm gonna read. Um, It's called The Trough, which is all about the space between waves. And it's by Judy Brown. There is a trough in the waves, a low spot where horizon disappears and only sky and water are our company. And there we may lose our way unless we rest, knowing the wave will bring us to its crest again. There we may drown if we let fear hold us in its grip and shake us side to side and leave us flailing, torn, disoriented. But if we rest there in the trough, in silence, being in the low part of the wave, keeping our energy and noticing the shape of things, the flow, then time alone will bring us to another place where we can see horizon, see land again, regain our sense of where we are, and where we need to swim. In the trough, in the silence, keeping your energy, knowing the shape of things, the flow. That's what we're doing. So be a grief surfer, be a love surfer. Bring awareness and compassion to all your emotions. And this brings us to the final part of the talk today, which is about working with awake view. Absolute view. So like the trough poem, there's these spaces between things. And you can notice that now There's spaces between your thoughts. There's spaces between your emotions. And just, you can rest in those spaces between all your thoughts and emotions right here, right now. What is that space between thoughts and emotions? And you could pay attention to that. My teacher calls it the space between the keys. So, you know, we're playing our song. We have our piano music that each one of us is playing our song. But there's a space between the keys as they're moving. 
as they're playing this song of you. And whenever you can, just feel that space between things. Space is not disturbed ever. Space is not distressed. Space is not afraid. So you see what a key this is. You can move out of the thoughts and emotions, the dogs chasing, the big waves, and just be to this silent space that is you, that's never afraid, never unsafe, never disturbed. And this space is infinity. You are infinity and that's what it means the buddha talked about to know the deathless and you want a place that's beyond this constant birth and death of everything it's the space itself infinite and eternal and you can always find this i mean the beautiful thing is it's always here you know, when we did the first meditation, you come down, you want to be in silence, you want to be quiet, but the, the quiet's already here. You don't have to make it happen. You know, your brain could talk forever and guess what it reverts to? It all comes back to silence. Back to emptiness or no self. So the Buddha said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the farther shore of existence. And that's just this resting in this emptiness. So when we're not distracted by the noise, and the seduction of thoughts and emotions, the movie constantly running, then we can drop into this stillness that's always here, this primordial infinite stillness. And again, you can see this right here and now, you don't have to look later. So everything around you is actually quiet. Like your computer is not talking to you. This pen is not talking to you. My glasses are not talking. You know, everything actually carries stillness. And that's why we like nature so much because it's really quiet and animals are quiet. At least not talking in a language we can understand often. So there's this quiet you can tap into. You know, just look at the lamp in your room. It, it's silent. Silence is like everywhere you are. No, nobody's talking. You know, when you can unhook from that radio station in your mind and just turn it down. And you start to see all the silence that is reflecting at you. It's kind of like sitting in a hall of silence all day long. It's really beautiful. The more I practice, the more I can just be in this hall of silence. 
no matter what's happening. And then the mind chatter is just a little bit like that radio. It's no big deal. And with the silence, you can, when you're sitting in this hall of silence, there can almost be like this I, this you that's just this, this watching it all from a place of silence, watching it all from a place of silence. It's like being an eternal I, E-Y-E-I, just watching everything. And, you know, in Buddhism, when they talk about the middle way, everyone often thinks that means like a compromise or, or you know, some kind of mean factor, uh, uh, the mean like averaging things out. But actually, the middle way is sitting in the middle, in the center, this eternal witness, I, seeing everything come and go. In, in space, in emptiness, birth, death, pain, joy, just watching it all, the storm of human existence, of pandemics, of fires, of floods, just the eye watching all of it. And Paul, you can go ahead and put up the eye slide. a nice example of you know this eye is the globe you probably can't see this but it's it's um the earth so going from the eye the small me the small eye to the eternal eye that can just see everything and you're in the center watching you can go ahead and take that down And then the beauty is when you can be this eternal eye watching, you see the entire game runs on its own. And that's really start, then it, then it really starts to get fun. You're watching this, the game just run on its own. And then you're just the eternal witness. You can release the world to the world and just rest in this absolute you. You don't need to do anything. It, it all just happens. And this silent view is not something you need to possess or be. It, it's something you already are. That's the really good news and easy part. You already are this eternal I that lets everything be, that lets everything be. My teacher likes to use the word, you know, for this I, he says, how is this? He uses that word all the time. How is this? How is this? Everything's silent. How is this? The sun comes up every day. How is this? This person is angry. Just the sense of how is this? You're just watching with awe and love. 
And when we can do this, it brings us to um, number eight in our spiritual credo. Paul, you can go ahead and put that up. So then we're just abiding in emptiness. And emptiness really is um, inseparability. So emptiness is everything. So you are inherently empty of a separate existence because your existence includes everything, the trees, the sun, the sky. Rest in the emptiness of now. That's you, empty and yet full with everything. Zen master said, the entire cosmos is my true personality. What if you could know that? Your true personality was all of it, the entire cosmos. Another way of working with this emptiness as all is a a more simple way is to think about the um, a Tibetan tonka, and you can go ahead and put that up, Paul. So in Buddhist cosmology, uh, the Tibetans feel that there's these six realms of existence. There's human realm and hell realm and heaven realms, hungry ghost realms. And um, each realm, you know, is almost like a whole, you know, a world of pain or a world of joy. And we're constantly bouncing around between these different realms. But in each realm, the beauty of why I'm showing this is in each realm, there's a little Buddha sitting. And I don't know, Paul, if you can do your cursor, but there's these little Buddhas up in the corners. Yeah, there's one. And then go to the right. There's ones on the Yeah, there's a Buddha there. (laughs) You can see. And even in the hell realm, see if you can. It's like finding Waldo. Yeah, there's the Buddha in the hell realm. So there's a little Buddha sitting in meditation in every realm, okay? And if you want to remember anything during these difficult times, just just be that little Buddha sitting in every realm, whether it's a good place, a heaven realm, or it's a bad place, a hell realm. You can be that little Buddha in every realm, whether... Good conditions are bad, a Buddha in the midst. And then in the final slide, there's a really nice example of this, a Buddha. So a number of years ago when those first really destructive fires came to California, and there's been a lot of destructive fires since then, um, in Northern California, all these houses were destroyed. And this is an actual picture of somebody's house burned down. And here is this Buddha left and it's still smoking in the back. This Buddha just sitting in the midst of the destruction 
and the fire, you can be that Buddha. That can be you, no matter what. Relax in that silent, ever-present, eternal, infinite nature of you. So I'd like to end with a poem. And it's actually a rather humorous poem. And it's a, it's a bit long, so just kind of relax. But I think we need humor during these times. So um, I, want, I wanted to add a little humor to all this. And this poem really looks at this mind and, and emotions combination and how to settle that down and find a place of peace with what your mind and emotions are doing. So it's actually called The Anatomy of Peace, and it's by a man named John Rodell. And um, I'll put the poem in the, um, and some of the things I did in the talk in our shared Google file. The Anatomy of Peace. My brain and heart divorced a decade ago over who was to blame about how big of a mess I have become. Eventually, they couldn't be in the same room together with each other. Now my head and heart share custody of me. I stay with my brain during the week, and my heart gets me on the weekends. They never speak to one another. Instead, they give me the same note to pass to each other every week. And their notes they send to one another always say the same thing. This is all your fault. On Sundays, my head, my heart complains about how my head has let me down in the past. And on Wednesdays, my head lists all the times my heart has screwed things up for me in the future. They blame each other for the state of my life. There's been a lot of yelling and crying. So lately, I've been spending a lot of time with my gut who serves as my unofficial therapist. Most nights I sneak out the window of my rib cage and slide down my spine and collapse on my gut's plush leather chair that's always open for me. And I just sit and sit until the sun comes up. Last evening, my gut asked me if I was having a hard time being caught between my head and my heart. I nodded. I said, I don't know if I could live with either of them anymore. My heart is always sad about something that happened yesterday, while my head is always worried about something that may happen tomorrow, I lamented. My gut squeezed my hand. I just can't live with my mistakes of the past or my anxiety about the future, I sighed. My gut smiled and said, in that case, you should go stay with your lungs for a while. I was confused. The look on my face gave it away. If you're exhausted about your heart's obsession with the fixed past and your mind's focus on the uncertain future, your lungs are the perfect place for you to be. There is no yesterday in your lungs. There is no tomorrow there either. There is only now. There is only inhale. There is only exhale. 
There is only this moment. There is only breath. And in that breath, you can rest while your heart and head work their relationship out. This morning, while my brain was busy reading tea leaves, and while my heart was started staring at old photographs, I packed a little bag and walked to the door of my lungs. Before I could even knock, she opened the door with a smile as a gust of air embraced me. She said, what took you so long? So if you get that head and heart divorce war, just coming back to the breath, letting go of those running dogs, thoughts, surfing the waves of emotion, resting in the silence between waves, and just coming back to the breathing. You as the center, the breath, the body, the inherent stillness, that's you. So let's just sit for one minute before we have our lunch break. Letting the word settle, the thoughts, the emotions can settle. And just being that infinite space it's all happening in, that's you. Feeling that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.